It's Wednesday, November 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Not too many things happening with the impeachment inquiry this week, as lawmakers are taking a break for Thanksgiving. But one development that occurred was a federal judge ruled that former White House counsel Don McGahn must testify under subpoena in the ongoing House impeachment inquiry. The Justice Department, which is representing McGahn, has said that they will appeal. Elena Treen, White House reporter at Axios, joins us for what it all means. Next, a comprehensive new study is showing that mortality rates for U.S. adults ranging from ages 25 to 64 continue to increase, bringing down the general population's life expectancy for at least three years in a row. The culprits killing more people are drug overdoses, diseases linked to obesity, and suicides. Jorge Ortiz, reporter for USA Today, joins us for more. Finally, there was a daring jewelry heist that happened at a museum in the German city of Dresden on Monday. German media has called the theft the biggest one there since the Second World War. In order to pull it off, the thieves set fire to a nearby electrical distribution point, which caused complete darkness at the museum. My producer, Victor Wright, joins us for how they got away with it. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. DOJ has made clear that they will appeal yesterday's decision. It is not a final decision. It is not necessarily a surprising decision. I was with the president when he was briefed on the decision coming down, actually, and we, nobody was surprised. Joining us now is Elena Treen, White House reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Elena. Thanks for having me. After two weeks of impeachment inquiry madness, we've kind of calmed down this week. Everybody's taking some time off for the Thanksgiving break. But we did have a little bit of news. A judge ruled on Monday that former White House counsel Don McGahn must testify under subpoena in the ongoing House impeachment inquiry. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to do with the whole Ukraine issue. This is kind of a drawback to the Mueller report. They want him to testify so they can ask questions about President Trump's effort to obstruct the Mueller inquiry. Elena, what do we know about this latest development? There are still a lot of things up in the air from a White House perspective. I've spoken with a lot of people in the White House today about this, and they say they saw this decision as someone expected, especially given that the judge who ruled on it, people within the White House call him Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, an Obama judge since he was appointed by former President Obama. But they saw that this was coming, and the Department of Justice has already said that they plan to appeal it and have made steps to do that already today. So there's still a lot up in the air and it will probably end up making its way through the courts. But I'd say the big picture here is really that it's the latest step that shows the president's stonewalling may continue to be challenged by the courts and may not hold up. And that, of course, has been seen for a lot of Democrats, especially those engaging in the impeachment inquiry as a victory for them. There was some pretty strong words from the judge. They said that this is promoting this kind of separation of powers and they're getting it backwards on this whole thing, that the powers of a monarch must be split between the branches of government to prevent tyranny. So they're saying, you know, if the White House is stonewalling this, that this is a completely wrong way to handle the whole situation. Right. And I think the strong language is definitely incredibly clear and worth noting that Judge Jackson did say 
presidents are not kings and trying to echoing really what a lot of Democrats who've been working on the impeachment inquiry who have been extremely frustrated by the White House's efforts to not comply with their subpoenas and their requests for documents. Their line has consistently been, if you continue down this road and you continue in this effort and strategy of noncompliance, this could be potential obstruction of justice in potential articles of impeachment that may be handed down by the House Judiciary Committee in the coming weeks. So as much as the McGahn ruling is not really tied, he wasn't called in under the impeachment inquiry per se, it could still be part of potential articles of impeachment should the House decide to move forward with those. And we still wouldn't even know what we could get out of Don McGahn also because some of the conversations could be subject to executive privilege. This is just saying he should appear before impeachment investigators, but he could still say executive privilege and our conversations are private and really not have to say much there also. And I think the important thing, more so than what Don McGahn could provide, since he was key to the Mueller investigation, had been interviewed by the former special counsel, Robert Mueller. It's really the message and the meaning of this and what a ruling like this says about the continued strategy by the White House to stonewall Congress's efforts. But I think the key here with that is we saw today a letter from John Bolton, Ambassador John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, who kind of watching how this court case was handled to see whether he would be eventually forced to comply by the courts. We've seen that a lawyer for him has said that by no means do they think that this ruling on Don McGahn touches someone like John Bolton because it doesn't apply to national security concerns. And so this is where I think There's going to be a lot of still looking at what happens in future court cases, how this is decided. There's a lot of unanswered questions about whether a ruling like this could ultimately motivate someone like John Bolton or also the acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, is another person that Congress is very interested in hearing from, whether they might ultimately be forced to come in and comply if the courts decide so. But again, in this impeachment inquiry and in Democrats' efforts to to hear from witnesses, they've made it very clear that they don't plan on waiting for future court cases in order to slow them down in any way. They say they're going to move forward regardless of whether they hear from witnesses like Don McGahn or John Bolton. John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney are more of a big fish that investigators want to talk to because they have more direct-hand knowledge with the Ukraine matter, especially John Bolton talking to a bunch of his counterparts there. You know, he told a lot of them to go speak to lawyers about what they were seeing and observing. And he knows a lot about what's going on. He had a private conversation with the president about the Ukraine matter. So they really want to talk to him, but he's been very hesitant on the whole thing. The president for himself has said that he would love for people to testify, but he's really fighting for future presidents and the office of the president. So it does signal that he's going to keep this going. And I think the firsthand knowledge remark that you made is a key point here. I was in the impeachment hearings for all of them over the past two weeks, and that was a key part of the hearings, especially from what Republicans in the White House themselves are using in their defense, that none of these witnesses that have been brought forth already who have testified in the impeachment inquiry have direct knowledge or firsthand knowledge or firsthand conversations with President Trump about the big phrase everyone's using is the quid pro quo or potential quid pro quo with Ukraine. People like John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney do have that knowledge, and that's why they really want them to come in. But as of now, it's still unclear whether they'll be able to land him. And again, his lawyer has said that if anyone wants to pursue their own lawsuit, then they will abide by that. That ones that apply more so to national security officials, but they're not taking the McGann case as applicable to them right now. Elena Treen, White House reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
researchers found an increase in uh, mortality over 35 different causes. So it's hard to just pinpoint why exactly this is happening. But the scary part in particular is that it's mostly on that age group from 25 to 64 years of age, the working age. Joining us now is Jorge Ortiz, reporter for USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Jorge. Glad to be here. There's a new study out that says that death rates from suicide, drug overdoses, liver disease, and dozens of other causes have been rising over the past decade for young and middle-aged adults. It's driving down our workforce. They're dying faster than any other wealthy country. So overall life expectancy in the U.S. has dropped now for three consecutive years. Jorge, what do we know about this new report? Well, it's a scary one, isn't it? Particularly because we don't know all the reasons. Opioid epidemic is one of them. The obesity fellow epidemic is another one. Suicides are up. Gun deaths. But researchers found an increase in uh, mortality over 35 different causes. So it's hard to just pinpoint why exactly this is happening. But the scary part in particular is that it's mostly on that age group from 25 to 64 years of age, the working age. Those numbers are not happening, oh, that, that increase in mortality is not happening among young people, and it's not happening among the older fellows. It's happening among people who are of working age. Yeah, they call them excess deaths. Talk to us a little bit about where in the country these are happening, because they're happening in a specific part, like the more Midwest. They're happening in the New England area as well. Where are a lot of these deaths being concentrated? The industrial Midwest, you know, that Ohio Valley, uh, Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, and Pennsylvania is one of the areas hardest hit. And not coincidentally, it's an area that lost a lot of jobs, manufacturing jobs in particular, starting in the 90s. Some of the findings were also concentrated in the Appalachia area, which hit really hard by the opioid epidemic. And the same goes for some of the upper New England states. The overall life expectancy has dropped three years in a row. When you identify the number, it doesn't really seem like that much. So we've gone from 78.9 years in 2014 to 78.6 years in 2017. That's the last year that was covered by the report. But some of the other numbers are a lot more worse. You mentioned drug overdoses and other diseases and suicides. Just for drug overdoses alone, between 1999 and 2017, the midlife mortality from drug overdoses spiked 386.5%. That is a huge number right there. And that number is astonishing, and obviously it, it had a lot to do with the opioid epidemic. Yeah. But I think we should also put in a context that life expectancy number, because people may say, well, you know, you get to 78.9, 78.6, you know, that's a pretty good number. But, you know, when you look at Japan, it's 84 years of age. France is 82.4. Canada is 81.9. And the average of these higher income countries, there's 17 of them that the researchers look at, it's 82.2. So not only are those countries in a better position on not only have a higher life expectancy, but we're going in the wrong direction while they keep moving up. So that's what's particularly worrisome. Where are experts pointing at certain causes? I know there's a lot of different things that are happening here, but what do they say about the healthcare system for our working adults? You know, it's interesting because that would be a logical place to put your finger on because we have such a dysfunctional healthcare system. And so much of it is based on how much money you make and also what kind of plan you have. And now working class people are paying more and more for uh, their health coverage. The cost of medical treatment has skyrocketed. So researchers say, yeah, that is one of the reasons that's one of the factors. And they point out that, hey, you know, other countries, industrialized countries, they have universal health care. We don't. 
But they go beyond that because they said that health outcomes are determined by medical care in only about 10 or 20 percent of the cases. So there's a good 80 percent out there that is not hinging on what kind of health care you have. Much of that is really more tied to lifestyle and then your economics, how much money you're making, what kind of opportunities you have. And it's no wonder why when you see Democrats debating on the debate stage and conversations that are being had around election time, healthcare is always such an important thing because it's just a big element of our lives. As you said, they go beyond just saying, hey, that the healthcare system is dysfunctional. They say a lot of these things are what's called deaths of despair, where there's a lack of social programs and support systems for people and they maybe lose a job or something. And so that's why maybe a suicide rate can spike up because they just feel like they have nothing left. So part of these numbers are also things that have to do with that. Those tests of despair are really concerning because they seem to be a product of people just being so stressed out and so afflicted by circumstances around them. A lot of them, financial circumstances, you know, losing a job, not having a support system around you. So oftentimes they will lead to behaviors that are unhealthy, such as turning to drugs and alcohol, smoking, overeating, and, you know, of course, it was worse one suicide. Nobody wants to hear any of this bad news, but experts have said that this study is very well crafted because of the comprehensiveness of what they take a look at. You're covering almost 60 years worth of evidence. And so it's hard to refute some of the findings when you take a look at where the information is coming from, which is from the U.S. mortality database and from the CDC and how uh, thorough this report is. So I think it should particularly worry us not only for the health aspect as far as, you know, the humanity of it, of wanting people to live healthy lives, but for the economics of it. If you have your workforce dying at a younger age, you're at a disadvantage compared to other countries where the workforce is not only living longer, but they're healthier. They don't take as many disability days or as many sick days. And they're also, some of those countries are also not saddled with the huge healthcare expenses that we have in this country. Jorge Ortiz, reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. They broke in and they go straight for the priceless jewels that are priced at around $1 billion. And there's also massive historical significance to this, which would be priceless on the market. Joining me now is my producer, Victor Wright. Thanks for being here, Victor. Thank you. We're going to be talking about this jewel heist in Germany that happened on Monday. I love a good heist story. I'm not trying to glorify these robberies or anything, but this one in particular seemed like there was a lot of planning behind it. And then they got away. They haven't been captured just yet. So there was thieves in the German city of Dresden. They broke into one of Europe's largest collections of art treasures. They went into the Green Vault there at the Dresden Royal Palace. So this heist took place at dawn on Monday There was a small fire that broke out in an electrical distribution point nearby, which deactivated the museum's alarm and put the whole area into darkness. And then this is how the thieves got in there and made away with this jewel heist. There is speculation that the jewel thieves actually set that fire to shut off the power. They broke in and they go straight for the priceless jewels that are 
priced at around $1 billion. And there's also massive historical significance to this, which would be priceless on the market. They're trying to put a number on it, but they really can't. I mean, these things have been around since like the 1780s when these pieces were made. And together, they're priceless in that sense. One of the big worries is that because you can't just sell this even on the black market there, these pieces are so highly recognizable. And what they're really afraid of is that these thieves might break them down and sell them as separate parts. If they tried to sell them just outright, it'd be like selling the Mona Lisa or something where everyone would know what it is and they wouldn't buy it. There was video released from CCTV where after they broke in, the thieves went straight for the glass windows of these jewels and just took what looked like a sledgehammer and pounded the window until there was a hole and just pried that window open from there. Brute force opened it. They took the jewels, ran outside to their getaway vehicle, and police have been on the search ever since. Yeah, and that vehicle was set on fire also, and then they found it afterwards. The museum itself is made up of two sections. There's a historic section and then a newer part. These jewels specifically were in the historic section, which has about three quarters of all of the museum's treasures. And that green vault, as it's called itself, has 10 rooms that have about 3,000 items of jewelry and other masterpieces. So even when you look at some of that security footage, they go straight to it. I don't know if they were targeting a specific item, but they knew the general location where they wanted to be. Yeah, they knew the general location of where these... It is important to note that since these are state-run museums, there is a policy that the guards do not carry guns and they are told to stay out of the way when something like this happens and to leave that stuff to the police, which some people have called into question. But in this case, the person in charge of the museum is still defending that practice and actually praised the police for everything they've done after the thieves got away. There's been a lot of art, jewel, treasure heists that have happened in Europe in recent times. One of the ones that they keep pointing to in a lot of these stories is this golden coin heist that happened in Berlin's Bode Museum in March 2017, where thieves got in and they stole a Canadian gold coin known as the Big Maple Leaf. It was 221 pounds that they left with. And later on, the thieves were fleeing along a railroad track with a wheelbarrow where they were holding this over 200-pound coin in. That gold coin itself was valued at about $4.3 million after selling all the pieces. I think they broke it up into parts and sold it. And that's the really sad thing. Referencing to what we said earlier is that these priceless artifacts could potentially be broken up and then sold separately. And once it's broken... Well, then all the historical significance just goes away and is shattered along with the actual artifact. In each of these pieces, there are maybe hundreds of individual diamonds, things like that. They said that breaking it up, it still could run into the hundreds of millions of euros. But they had this little thing. It's a diamond hat clasp. It's a little tiny thing that you would traditionally put on a hat that has 15 large diamonds and 100 small ones. They stole a sword and scabbard. Together, both of the sword and the scabbard have about 800 diamonds. So there's a lot of stuff individually that they could break up and sell. And I mean, really, if you're going to make any money off of this stuff, that's probably how you're going to have to do it to get away with it. Unless you keep it and that's just your trophy or whatever it is. Which a lot of people probably would do, too. Exactly. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. Thank you.
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.